This is Shift Run Stop, a fun podcast about games and cultural stuff and comedy and interviews. We're in a shopping centre for a change today, which is uh, noisy, I think, but nice still. Hmm. Sorry, I'm just eating some Millie's cookies. Um, <laughs> where the other, other cookie shops are available. Um, yeah, so uh, Dave has, has treated us to some biscuits and stuff. And we're here with uh, Peter Fletcher and Catherine O'Flynn. Hello. 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 So Peter is famous for his sneeze counting antics. And, um, as big... famous as it's possible to be for that, yeah. Yeah, well, I can't think of anyone else that does it. Yeah. So, so you're the king of that. And, and Catherine's a, a famous author. Well, slightly famous. I, I, I sneeze also, though. I just don't count them. <laughs> don't but I don't want to feel inferior on the sneezing front. <laughs> do you sneeze as much as Peter sneezes? Do you I, think? No, no, I don't. Nobody sneezes as much as Peter. It's freakish. It's just as well he counts them, because it's a lot, isn't it? You have to beat the average of 1.966 per day. <laughs> wow, that's but what you're averaging at the moment. That's based on the first 1,000 days, wow. which came up uh, a couple of weeks ago. That's... Wow. A lot of well sneezing. Done. By the way, congratulations on yeah. passing that milestone. 1,000 days, yeah. Was it 1,000 days or 1,000 sneezes? 1,000 days. Okay. <laughs> and the figure at the end of the 1,000th day yeah. is 1,966. That's uh-huh. too many, I think. And, and then the maths is easy. You divide yeah. you just stick <laughs> the decimal point. You don't have to divide. You just put the decimal point in there. Have you told your doctor about the amount you sneeze? Because it seems a little bit unusual. Is, is around about two sneezes a day? Is that, yeah. is that a lot? I think that's quite a lot. If you're not ill. Though a lot of people, you maybe don't notice it because you're not counting them. <laughs> this is my theory that maybe we are all sneezing that much, but by. we're just not aware of it. Yeah. We might also be able to hear Edie in the background, who's uh, Peter and Catherine's baby. She's, how old is she now, did you say? 11 months? Yeah, 11 yeah. months. She's adorable. She's beautiful. She's been very good. She's just sitting quietly observing. <laughs> Do you count her sneezes? Have you done like a proxy <laughs> blog? Quite, quite a common question <laughs> is, is, do you count other people's sneezes as well? <laughs> to which I had to respond, no, I only count my own sneezes, I'm not mad. <laughs> After a while it just becomes really unsettling when you say on the railway platform so you see someone sneeze and then they just stand there and you, know, you think well you know, are you not checking well, how do you know the time you're not going to remember that write it down come on simple rules and then you realise that you know, they just don't care they just they let them, let them go and they let them float up to the sky like balloons you know and it's just it, it does actually feel quite weird do you think if you stopped at any point you would feel free or would you feel somehow trapped I'm trapped at the moment a, a long time ago I thought a thousand days maybe that's the point where I could say okay a thousand days I'll stop and it's a thousand days of sneezes it has the right feel about it but as soon as I started getting anywhere near a thousand days it was way too soon way too soon I can't I can't stop so I, I and then you know an exit strategy is what I need but I can't I can't think of one I don't know how I'm do this do forever. one day probably I'll stop but then you see your problem is you get in, you get involved in the, the deeper sort of yeah. philosophical elements of sneeze counting where once you start doing it and, and you realise that actually it's it's about mortality and it's about you know every sneeze you have a finite amount of sneezes in your life you just don't know what the number is every time you sneeze you're one closer to that final number maybe so, there'll be some surgery available because they can deal with snoring well, maybe they could yeah. cure sneezing as well I think people I think people probably wouldn't want to go for that though I think people probably quite like the sneeze quite satisfying the sneeze yeah. isn't it we should say that you when you're writing down your sneeze you also uh, track a couple of other things with it so yeah. the, the time and date but also what you're doing and the intensity of the sneeze there's a very subjective measurement of 
strength, which is usually moderate or moderate to strong, occasionally strong, very occasionally mild. There's a theoretical very mild. I can't remember if I've ever actually had a very mild. There's also, yeah, just a brief note about what I was doing or thinking or the context of the sneeze. Which, and the very, very early first ones, I didn't do that. I started doing it after about 30 or 40. Uh, or I think I maybe did it only if something occurred to me, so it wasn't like a compulsory field. But uh, it soon became that, and, uh, and actually, that's more really bars for this dungeon all the time. Yeah. <laughs> there, was, there was always a place for it, but then after you know, after a, a, however long it was, a week or so, I realised that actually that was probably the more interesting thing about it. So for it acts me. as a sort of mini impromptu diary, yeah. because I know quite a lot about the way you live your life. Because at random moments in your life, you have to document what you were doing at that time. And there was, there was a couple of weeks when there seemed to be quite a strong correlation between listening to Shift Run Stop and yeah. your sneezing, because yeah. I knew that you were listening to We it. enjoyed that. Link yeah, well, exactly. And there's a thing that I write about as well, and I've um, spoken about this, which is that, um, in effect, what you're doing by counting and documenting sneezes is you're constructing uh, a stop-frame animation of your life with pseudo-random frames. So if you look back through your life with all these sneezes that you have in your life, you know, you'll spend a lot of time clearing out dusty cupboards or you know, having a cold because they'll obviously be <laughs> skewed towards sneezing. But you know, it, it, it will give a, more or less a random... Yeah. And so you can see... And some things don't get captured. Uh, some things do. But obviously it's a, it's a stochastic function, isn't it? The more that you do something, the more likely it is, on average, that you will, um, you will, you will catch that. And, and in, in roughly in proportion to the amount of time you do it. It makes being ill probably slightly more tolerable, knowing that it's all going to yeah. a good cause. You can record every every ill season. Yeah. And it, well, it used to be that I, I used to like a really, you know, a high-scoring day was always yeah. like, you know, <laughs> yes. Whereas, day. whereas now I just saw a bit more like, oh well, if, it, if it's one, if it's two, it doesn't matter. If it's none, it doesn't matter. And where, where can people go to uh, see the project? What's the, what's the URL? Uh, it's my website, which is www.joyfeed.com and then slash sneeze count but there'll be a link from, from Joy Feed I'm in computers I'm in the mainframe I'm in your headphones Well we're in Westfield which is a big shopping centre Yes we're in Westfield the famous um, new shopping centre near where we work. Are we yeah. allowed to say that? Yeah, we can say that. I work, I work on Wood Lane. And uh, Westfield is the biggest city centre shopping, I don't know, mall, would you call it? Yeah, thing? maybe, shopping yeah. Thing. Shopping centre, I think. In Europe. Is that right? Yeah. It's massive. It's like a little city, isn't it, in all of itself? Uh, yeah, I'd love to know how many people could fit inside it, but it is quite massive. It's, uh, yeah, it's bigger than it should be. I think, I think a good shopping centre should have about six shops in Right, six really good ones. Yeah. Uh, like Woolworths would have to be one of them. Yeah, definitely Woolworths. <laughs> Let's phone Dave then. We'll All do right. it on, we'll do it on the... Uh... Oh, he says he's here. There he is. Hello, Dave. Is that sitting outside the wrong one? He's joining us now he with, his, with his happy face and everything. Hello. This is very nice, isn't it? It's attractive, isn't it? This is, uh, this is uh, very, very quiet and uh, secluded. Yeah. We're outside today for snack time. It is the, the, the summer's here, Rope. And uh, um, with, the, with the World Cup just around the corner, mm. like uh, this is, and in a way, this is kind of a way of, of, of cheating, I thought, uh, around the world in 80 Snacks, mm. because Walker's Crisps, uh, clearly inspired by, uh, by our own pioneering work in this field, have, like, um, have, come, up, have come up with, um, with the, the, the Walker's Flavour Cup. The astonishing thing about the, the Walker's Flavour Cup is that they've come up with approximately, like I don't know, 
14 or 15 um, <laughs> new, new crisp flavours, all of which are some, somehow stereotypically associated with a particular country. Uh-huh. So, so far I've got a multi-pack of three. Mm-hmm. Let's start with um, Japanese teriyaki chicken. I so, imagine this is safe for vegetarians. I don't, I'm guessing it hasn't been near a real chicken. No, it's, it's not a bad flavour. For the, for the benefit of anyone who's, a, who's, who's ever wondered, you know, exactly what teriyaki means, mm-hmm. um, I think I would say, oh, it's a kind of Japanese barbecue. And that's pretty much what they've mm. gone for it's here. Nice, mm. Slightly sweet. Not, not overly strong. And I think, like, from what I recall, I don't know if this is cheating using someone else's reviews, Charlie Brooker, like, said, well, you know, they all claim to be from bit different bits of the world. However, they're all, they're all incredibly bland. <laughs> but let's see if that's um, manifested in, uh, in our next flavour. South African sweet chutney. I like those. I'd buy them. Don't you think it's ketchup-y? Yeah, it's, I think it's because it's so sweet. It's a little bit. It's, it's, to, be, to be honest, it's like, it's like a mild tomato ketchup flavour, mm. if people remember those as crisps. Mm. And then finally, perhaps the most controversial of the lot. Certainly the most racist of the, all the crisps. <laughs> well, it's, well, it's, 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 it's racist towards marsupials. <laughs> Australian barbecue kangaroo. <laughs> I think like the squirrel one, this probably doesn't contain real kangaroo. Not. No, but it's maybe it's sort of what kangaroo would taste like. Maybe mm-hmm. the engineers at Walkers had to taste some barbecued kangaroo mm-hmm. and then approximate it in chemicals. And, yeah, and I, I'm, you know, I'm sure you can eat kangaroo, and in many parts of Australia there are fearsome pests. If you can catch it, kangaroo, you can eat mm-hmm. it. Yeah, that, 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 that's the law. <laughs> <laughs> if if if, or if you can if you can best a kangaroo in in a in a boxing match, then then the the victor is is allowed to uh, to um, yeah consume the other the, the, the loser. This one is very mild, I think. Yeah, of, of all three, it's all right. This is the one I won't be buying in the shop. It's quite barbecuey. So and now I'm going. It's com- not as good as the Japanese teriyaki. Barbecue. I'm going to compare compare it with the teriyaki. Who'd have thought? I mean, to be honest, this is a bit like when, when Sainsbury's have a selection of, like, certainly they used to do this in the past, of, like, three different, like, um, you, know, you get a multi-pack of four different strawberry yogurts. So there'll be strawberry, and then there'll be strawberry with vanilla. And then maybe alpine strawberry. <laughs> <laughs> the forest stra- strawberry. And you go, oh, no, it's not bad. It's, it's, not, it's nothing revolutionary yet. What I hope to track down in the future, and, like, they're, they're just appearing in supermarkets at the moment... Uh, I think I got these from I got these from an ASDA. It's like like I said, the, the, apparently there are there are literally thousands of uh, of other flavours, including uh, I'll just do a, a brief one down here: English ro- roast beef and Yorkshire pudding, German bratwurst sausage, Dutch Edam cheese, um, uh, Argentinian flame grilled steak, which is a very, very complicated one, and of course classics like um, Brazilian salsa, American cheeseburger, and French garlic baguette. Something for everyone in there. <laughs> Whatever your flavour <laughs> preference. And, uh, and, 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 and. I'm a computer. I'm on a short way. Catherine, I, I want to talk to you about your books because yes. you wrote a wonderful novel called What Was Lost, which was uh, quite a lot of it was about a shopping centre, which is why, partly why we're here in Westfield, because we know you're such a fan of shopping centres. Yeah, it was really thoughtful of you to bring <laughs> me back to the place that I wrote about because I'd had such a shit time working there for years. It was, it was nice. There is a lot of really witty stuff. I think people really responded to that because it was, it was sort of the, the light in the dark, really. It's like... Yeah, I, I didn't sort of want it to be because it could have been unremittingly grim. Obviously, mm. you know, it was about people stuck in uh, dead end jobs, but 
the flip side of that was often that you know when I've been in lots of dead end jobs the flip side is that you know you often have a very good sort of camaraderie and you, you have a good laugh with the people you work with and so I wanted to write about that and also you know the child detective was kind of based a bit on me as a child and just how seriously I took that you yeah. know and that looking back now it was really tragic that I had spent my childhood trying to find crime when there was none but you know <laughs> at the time I was so earnest about it you know you lived in Birmingham there must have been crime all over the place <laughs> well that's the irony that there that's the, that's the, the South Coast view, but not, but not the kind of crime that you know you'd read about in children's books. I was looking for things like um, international yacht hijacking <laughs> and diamonds thieves and things yeah. like that, you know. And uh, there was none of that. <laughs> Just but, the odd robbery and the odd. Yeah, I used to. Cause I lived around the corner from a bank. And um, I used to basically sit outside there and take down car registration numbers a lot of time. Just, <laughs> just in case. In case, yeah. exactly, in case. Bad. And, of course, nothing ever happened. And then years later when I met Pete and I was treating him to a tour of the old haunt and I said, this is the bank that, you know, I used to... I wasted most of my childhood outside. And there was a sign outside saying, robbery here, did you see anything? Oh, no! Like, 20 years too late. I, like, I wanted to go back through those old notebooks just in case there was a lead from 1977. Were you working in a art cinema or an art centre or something while you were writing this award-winning book? We should say it did incredibly well. It was it was long-listed for the Booker Prize and yeah. Costa and Orange and loads of yeah, amazing. Yeah, it was ridiculous. It was it was stupid, very late and <laughs> terrifying. For me, it was terrifying because I'm kind of. A generally pessimistic person and having loads of good luck just makes me think something terrible is around the corner that there's going to be some awful payback kind of so the whole process was quite alarming for me really but um well actually we, I, I wrote most of it when um Pete and I went out and lived in Barcelona for a couple of years and I, and I, I wrote it then um, and so it was quite weird being in that very blue kind of Mediterranean environment and writing about this dark uh, Midland shopping centre, you know, sort of putting myself back there every day. A lot of crime in Barcelona as well, I understand. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, shocking pickpockets. Yeah. But, you know, I was, it, it was gone then. The magic was gone for me. I did, uh, yeah, yeah, I wasn't out there foiling it anymore, unfortunately. But remembering the days when you were. Yeah, yeah. I like the sound of going to Barcelona for two years and pursuing creative projects. Was, I think it was an early midlife crisis for us, wasn't it? Um, we kind of... Well, there, was, there were about six months of not having a job in which Catherine was able to write the book and I just sort of wandered the streets and, and the week or, or yeah. just Keldon sneezes I was no, like just... bacon and he was the artful dodge <laughs> I'd send him out in the morning don't come back to me unfortunately nothing as creative or productive as that just doing nothing at all and going going mad really because we didn't really know anyone yeah. out there and we didn't um, didn't have very much money we sort of slightly miscalculated <laughs> and, and virtually no furniture a couple of futons from Ikea this massive flat that we got and uh, yeah so it was yeah, we, we had to get a, get a job teaching in the end we decided to do a course and do that and that was the best thing we did because then we could sort of meet people not Spanish people not Catalan <laughs> people obviously but uh, but, but people nonetheless and uh, and then that then it sort of got more interesting slowly but the first sort of six eight months were actually quite, quite that was easy not me yeah. <laughs> I'm really concerned people are going to think they hear raspberries being blown in the background or indeed actual wind I also found something unusual. Mm-hmm. These were reduced, um, or, the, or these, these were certainly quite cheap in a um, in a Tesco's in North London, which uh, caters to a wide range of uh, of different cuisines. Um, because of course it was Passover just the other just the other week. Yeah. Well, this this uh, on on the pack. It's a it's a kosher for Passover and all year round. Bisley 
Bisley? Bisley. Uh, it's, it's a double S, so I'm going to say Bisley. Yeah, down, down the bottom falafel flavour, wheat party snack. It's a party snack, and it's falafel flavoured crisps, at last. And they look like little sort of mealworms. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they look like pieces of all bran. Um, yeah, they do actually. Ooh. Imagine knickknacks, where you've forgotten to put any air in them. Mm. <laughs> They're quite dense. <laughs> <laughs> They're quite heavy going, aren't they? So it's made of matzo meal, palm oil, uh, dehydrated onion and garlic, spices, salt, and monosodium glutamate. Delicious. There you matzo go. is a thing, isn't it? That mm-hmm. people it's a, have a Passover. It's a thing. Ma- matzo, yeah, matzo is another another Passover thing. And this is um, they need a better way of preparing it to make it a bit less. Uh, Soaking it in milk. I was going to say, like. <laughs> you should pour it, pour some kind of fluid over it. To, <laughs> Bulk it up a bit. Right. Well, you know, if it's falafel, you could dip it in hummus. Would that work? <laughs> yeah. Uh, some hummus flavoured crisps. This, this is this is about my understanding of um, of Middle Eastern uh, cuisine. And then finally, someone 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 sent this into to snack spot in a previous year, and and really really I, I liked it for many reasons. It's uh, it's described as the Osem Bamba peanut snack, um, and um, like uh, certainly I found it. It was it was about twenty four p. In, in a North London Sainsbury's, um, it's got it's got the most amazing graphics all over it, explaining that it's kosher for Passover, only for those who eat kidneyot on Passover. So I don't know what I, yeah, again I don't know what they're allowed some kidneyot, then this is fine. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah, and it's got these special <coughs> logos. This seems to be a little banner that's it's been. It's got an extra layer yeah, on the yeah. packet. You never see crisp packets with an extra layer on. Well, no, that's that, sort of plastic that, ribbon stuck that, to it. That's been put on by by the the kosher like authorities. Uh, to, to, to indicate, but anyway, if you, if you want to open it up, right? These open. So these are uh, peanut snacks from mm-hmm. the same company, from the Osem. Oh, they're, oh, they're from Osem as yeah. well. And there this we is, go. This is the Bamba peanut. It's got snack. a little sort of um, kung fu man on the front doing some sort of martial arts. Oh, they look a lot like what's it's. That's peanut peanut flavored what's and it's. And mm. It is peanutty. Maybe it's like peanut bit, butter. Yeah, the flavor's unbelievably peanutty, isn't it? And, and the thing is. And it makes it, it much it makes it much sweeter than you'd expect. Yeah, so the ingredients are just peanuts, corn, and vegetable oil and salt. Oh, and oh, and there's a bit of a bit mm. of the salt there. It's really nice. It is I like that. Puffy it, peanut butter. At first, I thought it was a bit floury and dry, but actually, actually, it's grown on me already. Mm. Within two goes at it. It's. Uh, Mm. These are probably the healthiest of all. <laughs> we, 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 Oil we assume, and but, but, and salt. but but again shows you know what's 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 capable if you if you take the the flavors of the world as your inspiration. Crisps of the world, almost. That's lovely. What, what a mess we've made of this table. And uh, yeah, but yeah, hopefully hopefully we'll come back to this if other people have found other um, Walkers flavor cup, and presumably you know there can only be, be a matter of weeks now. Until the actual World Cup. Oh, it surely is, but hours away. And uh, well, and like, and may, um, you know, may, maybe maybe the teams will run on, hold it, holding their, their <laughs> proudly holding their bags of barbecue kangaroo and going. <laughs> wow! Thank you, Dave. Thanks. Very Once much. again, you fill us with all sorts of wholesome goodness. No, no, no. It's 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 my pleasure. Good snacking. <laughs> Gasometers that you um, that appeals to you is it that they were always around you when you were growing up. Yeah, I do a lot. Where I lived was just next to 
I didn't say next to Saltley like that means anything to anyone, but there was a famous, it was the first episode of Flying Pickets the, in the minor strike in the 70s was at Saltley Gate. When I was growing up, that was like, I was led to believe it was famous. They're like, oh, Saltley, you live in Saltley, but it's not <laughs> really famous. But anyway, there were lots of gasometers, and so I suppose for me it's a little bit nostalgic. And when I was, I was in a little gang when I was at primary school, and our kind of den headquarters thing was in the, just underneath this gasometer. So for me, it's got a bit of. It's not depressing or bleak. It's kind of uh, quite romanticised and magical sort of environment. Is that what inspired... Because there's a sort of underground den thing in What Was Lost. Is that kind of inspired by your adventures in industrial wastelands? Yeah, exactly. I'm always kind of embarrassed whenever I I talk about, uh, well, either my past or what was lost because it becomes apparent that so much of it was clearly sort of just stolen from life or autobiographical. I think you're allowed to do that though, aren't you? Isn't I reckon. Right, what you know? Yeah, particularly with, you know, your first novel. But yeah, I used to just, I was a bit of a, well, as the detective thing shows, I was a bit of a sad, lonely child. <laughs> and so I was either sitting outside the bank taking down registration numbers <laughs> or uh, wandering around where we lived all the factories had been demolished it was that kind of time between industrialisation and now it's all casino it's literally casinos and shopping centres where I grew up but uh, it was all kind of wasteland and I so I used to play around on, on there sorry Pete's gagging Edie now <laughs> she likes it <laughs> uh-huh. she's well, chewing my finger yeah she is she just, we just noticed the second tooth this morning so. oh fun we asked our friend Dr. Ralph Harrington to tell us what's going on with all that volcano stuff at the moment because he's a uh, volcano enthusiast and researcher and uh, he writes volcanism.wordpress.com so you should go and check that out. It's the name on everyone's lips. Eyjafjallajökull is the small Icelandic volcano that has been making a big name for itself, pouring ash into the atmosphere across northern Europe and causing chaos in the skies. Now, with the eruption apparently subsiding, flights resuming and people beginning to find their way home, it's perhaps time to stand back a little from all the expensive chaos and ask what, in volcanological terms, it's all been about. The answer, in a word, is ash. And immediately we're faced with a problem of terminology. Ash is soft, friable stuff, the product of combustion, the burning of basically organic substances such as wood, paper or bone. Volcanic ash is something else entirely. It is not produced by combustion, by burning at all, but by the violent, explosive fragmentation of rock. And it's hard, abrasive and often razor-edged. Technically, volcanic ash consists of small pieces of tephra or pulverized rock, less than two millimeters in diameter, with much of it being very much smaller than that. The rock is fragmented during a volcanic eruption, generally by the violent expansion of gases within it, so it is shattered from within, and the resulting fragments are carried into the air by the volcano's eruption column to heights which can range from a few hundred meters to tens of kilometers. The ash, mixed with steam and other gases, is hot and buoyant and remains happily airborne for some time, moving through the atmosphere, following the air currents, circling and recircling the globe, and dispersing itself over a very wide area. The list of the horrible things it can do to aeroplanes is very long. Sandblasting of windscreens, so that pilots can no longer see out, clogging of sensors, disruption of electrical systems, for the particles in volcanic ash are electrically charged, 
denial of oxygen to the engines, and if fine particles are drawn into jet engines, they melt and fuse themselves to turbine blades, compressors and other components. To put it briefly, a volcanic ash kills jet engines. This is not theory. In 1982, a British Airways Boeing 747 flew through ash erupted by the Indonesian volcano Galungung. The result was calamitous. One by one, all four engines failed, turning the airliner into a big glider, heading inexorably and powerlessly towards the earth. In this case, the pilots managed to restart the engines, after free-falling 20,000 feet or so, and ultimately landed safely. The 2010 Ayafialtla eruption brought together a number of circumstances that made it particularly disruptive. The eruption involved a significant volatile presence in the magma and extensive ice-water-magma interaction, producing explosive reactions that created more ash to throw into the atmosphere. The resulting plume was high, but not, in volcanic terms, very high. It reached altitudes of between 20 and 35,000 feet, nicely placed to interfere with the normal cruising altitudes of airliners. Volcanic eruptions in Iceland produced emissions clouds of gas and ash that reached Europe in, for example, 1875 and 1783. In the latter case, which was the eruption of Laki, the cloud was so pervasive and poisonous that it killed thousands in Iceland itself by poisoning the grazing lands which sustained the island's cattle and blocked the sun, producing illness and crop failures in Europe itself. Iceland sits on top of a spreading ridge in the North Atlantic, where two tectonic plates are moving apart, and magma constantly rises to fill the gap between them. It is also on top of a mantle plume, a jet of magma rising from the mantle to the surface. As a result, volcanic activity is pretty much constant in Iceland. I'm on the You're working on another book, is that right? Oh, well, I've finished it now. It's, it's coming out in uh, July. Thank God I've finished What's it. it called? <laughs> it's called um, The News Where You Are, which and it's kind of about um, a local local newsreader. Um, yeah, I wanted to write about local news because <laughs> I'm so amused by local news. But um, yeah, a local newsreader who um, is really kind of corny and you know tells like awful jokes at the end of his uh, his reports as local newsreaders often do. But underneath, he's quite a thoughtful, a sensitive character. His father was an architect who built a lot of the sort of 60s, 70s brutalist buildings in Birmingham, which are all being demolished now. And so he's got this sense of like things disappearing and vanishing, and his predecessor died in a mysterious way and so it's kind of a little bit of a mystery about what happened to his predecessor but also about just the physical environment disappearing and what traces people and places that disappear leave um, and when it's out in july did you say july so, yeah yeah so. so it's kind of summer reading the holiday thing or like yeah, it's, a... i think it's, it's it's slightly more potentially slightly more upbeat than what was lost mm. so, well that it couldn't really be less upbeat than what was lost always have you seen yeah. the cover yet yeah, I have, and I, and I like it, which is a miracle, because, you know, my first book, I didn't quite like the cover at first. It changed into another cover after a while, but, and I kind of realised then that you don't actually have a say in your covers. The author's, like, very, very bottom of the list of people after retailers yeah. and, you know, random people in the street. And so I was kind of resigned to not liking this one, but I... It's a, it's a beautiful illustration of Birmingham skyline, so I'm very excited. Wow. Is there a gasometer in there? I think, I think there is, yeah. There's certainly the Ring and St. Martin's Spire, so it's, it's very exciting. Yeah. yeah.
and, 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 and uh, as is traditional, of course, we don't need to set it up at all. I, I just sort of spontaneously volunteer yeah. the information. I was just going, yeah, I was at Dortbot. It was brilliant. Tell us about Dortbot. It was, yeah, it was quite good. There were like, um, it, it, it was a new venue for, for Dortbots, mm-hmm. uh, Dortbot London in, uh, in West London. There was a whole bunch of speakers. There was someone called, I think, Alexandra Daisy Ginsburg or Daisy Alexandra Ginsburg, and she talked quite a lot about. Um, artificial life forms and genetic yeah. uh, engineering and and art and then there was another man who'd come up with a whole load of like crazy um, circuit bent like Super Nintendos and and uh, but I, I I didn't record anything of him the uh, the the bit I recorded was this this guy who does um, who does DJ gigs with two Atari STs and playing uh, playing classic chip tunes on the Atari STs using software that he's written for them and fading in between the two and well what he can introduce himself Hi uh, my name's Gwem Gareth Morris I was uh, just at a presentation at Dortbot London on uh, DJing with two Atari STs I'm an 8-bit musician and uh, I thought people would be interested to learn about it This uh, format, SMDH, doesn't give you too much to play with, but um, I have tried to put in some stuff so you can interact with the music a bit. You can mute and unmute the different um, playing, the different uh, sounds which are playing by using the F keys. Uh, the Atari sound chip has three channels, and you can mute and unmute them. So you can hear that I've, we've just lost the bass line. Let's uh, bring the bass back. And the, now the drums have gone. So if you know where the things are on the different tracks, you can sort of bring the different instruments in and so on and work with the track. What were the, uh, what were the uh, Atari sound files that you were playing? So I played uh, the song Buzzer by Mad Max. And the song... Um, uh, Family Dog by a musician called Iso. And you've just done a tour of Germany. How how was that? Uh, The tour of Germany was absolutely crazy. Uh, Nine days long. You know, I never expected it because I'm I'm relatively sensible. But I can see why these uh, rock stars go so wild. The tour bus is so boring and the only thing to do is drink beer. And you get to the gig and there's seems to be lots of interesting girls around. <laughs> Plus, you've got a light and you've got Atari Well, I mean, STs. it's the Ataris, so I think that's the, the reason behind in, the in rock and roll. In addition to your own substantial personal magnetism. <laughs> and, <laughs> no uh, doubt. And, and leather jacket. And, no uh, doubt. And, and you're dressed all in black. Is this, is this your look, Gwen? Is this, oh, well, it are, is. Are you, are you the Johnny Cash? Atari computers, and did, did he explain exactly how he's doing it? What, what's he, he says, uh, yeah, if, if, you, if you go to his website, Gwem is, I think, short for Gareth Morris, okay. and um, you can go to his website if you have an Atari ST mm. and you want to DJ using uh, the Atari classic sound format, which I believe is called SNDH. Um, then yeah, you, you can you can just download the software. You don't even need to plug it into a monitor because, like like a proper DJ deck. 
you, you can control the Atari just using um, just using the buttons. There was a bit of tension between him and some Amiga users in, in, in the audience. Did it kick off? Because you know, because those old, those old rivalries, you know, they they, they, they they live on, don't they? Some someone someone asked the question: Was it difficult DJing on the Atari ST, given that all of the best music ever was created on the Commodore Amiga, <laughs> or something along those lines? And uh, and he said, "Oh no!" and made the interesting distinction a lot of Atari music was created kind of using uh, using the synthesizer chip because it had a kind of Commodore-ish mm. like three channel yes. what, what we would now consider to be a kind of chip tuny like uh, output a lot of Amiga music was created using samples uh, with with, pro- with programs like Optimed and this kind of thing and, uh, and uh, clearly there's a bit of crossover between those but and he, he, he made the interesting point that like in fact now a lot of Amiga sound, uh, samples sound a bit cheesy because they're recorded really at quite a low bit rate but, uh, but the, uh, the Atari the Atari ST uh, tunes as, as, you, as you heard sound as sound as, as brutally uh, have the same brutal clarity that they always did so in, Ma- in Manic Minor the music is very sort of like blippy it's kind of because if the spectrum was making a sound n- n- the computer couldn't do anything else and so <laughs> the, the, like, the, the screen has to be drawn in the spaces in between those notes um, but more sophisticated sound chips got much better at that and um, yeah and so consequently if, if you have any favourites from, um, from Atari ST uh, video games you can probably get the sound file of them and DJ with them to, to, uh, to the, the, the ladies of Germany yes. according, according to Gwen but you know like uh, your mileage may, may vary as they say <laughs> on the internet good luck with that <laughs> Um, you and Peter, I think, both used to work as post post people delivering yeah. posts. Is that is that how you met? I love, no. to, think, I love to think that's how you met. Like, no, just both accidentally delivering to the same address. Or, <laughs> I don't know. Some kind of, <laughs> oh, I certainly did a lot of delivering to the wrong address. <laughs> <laughs> that was my specialist subject. Do you, um, ever no. just, do you ever just give up and just go, I'll just stuff it in any letterbox? <laughs> well, really I, I, I might as well have done. <laughs> But, you know, I would sort of be—I'd switch off and then do a whole street, and then look down and realise I'm just everyone's getting their next door neighbour's mail all the way up the street. Oh god! When we got back from Barcelona, and obviously we didn't have any kind of work, so we we got the first thing that was that was going. It was a part-time job where we go in once it had been sorted into the into the frame, and then we basically deliver. So normally a postage job, half of it is sorting it into the frame and doing all that. The other half is the actual walking around the streets delivering. We just did the second half. And then there's a guy who used to work, well, he probably still does work, and he, he, worked, he worked in that, that delivery office for many, many years. And basically he knew, he knew pretty much every walk off by, off by heart. So he would say, okay, what you want to do is you want to bundle up this, this road and, and then halfway through this road, have that as one bundle and then then do this bundle next and cut across go through the around the back of here and, and he knew like for every other 20 odd walks he knew basically all the little shortcuts and the, the mo- then then of course you've got about six or seven or eight big bags so you have drop points and he'd say okay then stop that bag there and then have another bag and then you can leave it here and you know and he just and he was great he used to work overnight his shift was like 12 to 8 overnight he would deal with all the deliveries coming in and uh, he just had this like super knowledge of the 
of the, the you know, Royal Mail space in, the, in that area. Do they come to you wrapped in uh, elastic bands? Because I see a lot of red elastic bands on the floor, and I assume that it's posties. Yeah, it would be. I know, I didn't used to throw mine up, you didn't throw yours. No, you I've got a big bag of them at home. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that counts as stealing. I don't know if you're supposed to throw them on the floor. And my intention is one day I will make a big ball out of them. Yeah. There is a big bag for them, so there's at least a moderately sized ball's worth. I think better to take them home with you and make yeah. a big ball yeah, than just fling them on the floor. Littering the ground. You'd often get like charming street urchins approaching you and asking you for elastic bands, or I did anyway. Little boys coming up saying, "What elastic bands?" Like, so they can I, um, turn them into weapons. Yeah, and then, you know, fire them at you. Regret that now. I often quote um, Peter told me a thing about being a postman which I used in fact at my talk at Playful I think when I was talking about my book which has a section about the post office in it because I'm, massive section I'm, quite, about I'm quite interested in the postal service it's almost entirely about the postal service yeah yeah my sort of um, bugbears but um, yeah so and, and Peter said the problem with being a postman is that you get to the point where it's like if all you have is a hammer everything looks like a nail so you, you're just trying to post it up everywhere <laughs> <laughs> like, well, this fit through this you become obsessed with letterboxes yeah. that is how it works because the letterbox and the your enemy <laughs> well letterbox is yeah is, well he's your friend or he's your enemy and usually is your enemy the, the number of letterboxes or things that go by the name of a letterbox that are not fit for purpose that are just you know are, are just things to trap your hand resist any kind of paper or cardboard products um, you know hide snarling snarling dogs and uh, yeah. you know, just so I'm yeah. thinking um, like draft guard kind of draft excluded yeah. bristles they're going to be annoying they after the, like, the yeah. fifth door and then like double one so you, you got it to the letterbox and that's really stiff and sprung and then there's some other thing which is even more guys so you kind of get your <laughs> and then like the dog trap. comes and gets you <laughs> and ones that are at uh, ground level they're really annoying yeah. you've got a heavy bag you've got to bend down and then often I'd just become capsized I couldn't yeah. get back up again once I got down that low I'd just kind of fall over onto my side and have to wait for a civilian to come and stand me up again really old ones that are so small that you know you have to fold the postcards to get it you know and just screw yeah, totally. things up into like a scroll and then wedge them through much to Catherine and Peter for coming in and Edie of course who's been um, su- supplying us with background noises occasions throughout and she knows we're talking about Very it Very smiley um, Lovely baby Edie's provided the most coherent answers I think throughout Yeah it's really good to meet both of you thanks for, thanks for coming in Thank you for having us it's been very yeah. nice Very very nice to meet you too <laughs> Goodbye that was Shift Run Stop, available on iTunes or from the website shiftrunstop.co.uk.